you brought a Bible, uh, you're going to need that, and so I'll encourage you to grab it, and you can turn uh, to the book of 1 Corinthians, the final chapter. Uh, we are wrapping up our series uh, in this book this morning. So here's a little thought exercise for us as we kind of start. Um, if you were in charge of building the perfect church, uh, what would it look like, right? If we could like bring an imaginary whiteboard up here and say, okay, we're going to build a per- I don't just mean like a building. It's got to have uh, access, not like that. I mean like us as the church, right? If you could build, I'm going to build the perfect church. Um, what kind of stuff would be in there? Um, some of you, and I think some of your answers would reveal uh, what's important to you, right? And your priorities. So some of you might say like a, a the perfect church, we got to have a really good kids ministry, right? Because I want my kids to have, you know, kids zone and youth group, and I want them to be around other believers. And that's, that's fine. That's great. Some of you might say, uh, maybe you don't have kids, and so that's not your priority. And you're like, you know what? If a, the perfect church would have really solid worship and, and uh, good musicians, and it's not distracting, and the songs are just like so uplifting and theological and those types of things. Some of you are like, we need chairs instead of pews. That's on my list. Just kidding. Uh, but some of you are like, yeah, the aesthetics matter and, and how we decorate the building. That's really important. Some of you are like, well, all of that, all that matters is the preaching, right? It doesn't matter about anything else. As long as the preaching is solid, that is what makes a good church. Uh, I talked with someone years ago that was on a uh, like a search committee for a new lead pastor, and they were kind of talking through, well, what do we want in a pastor? And the biggest thing that they said, which would make us a great church and a, you know, uh, uh, would be a great pastor, is we just want someone who loves us. And that's who they looked for. So they said that would make a really good church if there's a pastor who genuinely loves us. Some of you are like, uh, churches are only good when they're small, right? Once you reach a hundred people, it's just too many people, and then the church gets too big. Some of you are like churches that are less than a hundred people aren't good. We need bigger churches, right? Are like we could fill up eight whiteboards of opinions on what makes a, a good church, the perfect church, right? Um, you could then zoom in closer, right? Because we, as a church, we we are a, a body of believers, but we're all individual believers. So you could zoom in close. Uh, zoom in closer and ask the question, what makes a a mature, healthy follower of Jesus? If we could write a whiteboard, what would that look like? Someone who is a mature, healthy, strong believer. You could put fruits of the Spirit. You could put generosity. You could put obedience. All sorts of things, right? So for, this is our 29th week. We have been studying uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we've called it Messy Church, right? So we're talking about what makes a perfect church. Uh, and, And We've been studying this church that existed in the ancient city of Corinth, and like messy is an understatement, right? If you haven't been walking with us through the last 15 chapters, I mean, this church was messy, the definition of messy. There was all of this fighting going on, and there was um, uh, uh, pride, and there were, they were playing favorites. No, Pastor Andrew's my favorite. No, Pastor Don's my favorite. And, and he's the better spirit. He's the, Peter's better. Apollos is better. So there was favorites and different camps developing around the, the, the leaders. There was uh, incest going on in the church, and the church was just kind of winking at it, not really dealing with it. Um, they were fighting over spiritual gifts, and I'm better than you because I have a more crazy gift, and that makes me more spiritual. They were fighting over singleness and divorce and, and sex and marriage, like just everything. Just like a really, really messy church. And Paul's whole letter is he's attempting to right the ship. Right? Can we, we got to get back on track, Corinth. We got to get healthy. We got we to gotta kind of put out some of these fires and then we just got to keep moving forward with the mission that God has us on. So we're in the last chapter, the conclusion of the letter. And some people use the term like a, a, like a, a, like a junk drawer ending. So if, you, uh, if you're like me, you have a drawer in your house when you don't know where to put something because it doesn't fit any other drawer. You just put it in the junk drawer, Right? And there's just random stuff that you'll never discover until you move. 
And then you're like, what is this drawer? And then you know what happens? You take that drunk junk drawer and then you move into your new house and it just becomes the new junk drawer. I'm like, just throw it out. Right, but we have those types of things, the junk drawer. Some people view uh, a lot of the ending of Paul's letters as that kind of, he's just trying to like just randomly say a whole bunch of stuff to wrap up his letters. He'll, he'll list a bunch of people, he'll thank some people, he'll say this. And some people say, well, it's just kind of like this junk drawer approach. You're just trying to wrap up all of these loose ends. Um, I think there's a tiny bit of truth in that. That sometimes it seems like Paul's just trying to, let's wrap up all of these loose ends and then just kind of, there, we finished the letter. But, but I think there's actually a through line in Paul's closing thoughts. Because I, I want to remind you, he's just spent like 15 chapters, right? There, there weren't chapters in his original letter. But he spent a long letter trying to write this church that is just filled with, with mess, and, and so we have to, well, how would you wrap up a letter? Uh, and, and so I think if we can come at chapter 16 by, by asking, what are some things that will help a church be healthy and upright and thriving as opposed to just being a messy church? I, I think we're going to see some of those things in chapter 16. There's five of them that I have found. Now, I want to just up front say, I know there's more, right? When we say these five things will make a healthy, thriving church, obviously there's other ones, right? But I think as Paul wraps up his letter, um, we're going to see some kind of themes, I think, that he's zeroing in on as he uh, uh, encourages this church to kind of keep moving forward, so five of them that we're going to look at. Number one is this, what makes a healthy, upright, thriving church? I think one of the things is radical generosity. So verses one to four, Paul says this, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul uh, is, is he's moving on, right? So chapter 15 was the resurrection, our future resurrection. And, and so now in chapter 16, he's moving on to a different topic. And he says, okay, now concerning the collection for the saints. So either the Corinthians had um, asked a question in their letter to Paul, right? We, we, we know that they had written a letter to Paul bringing up a bunch of things. Maybe, maybe they asked, what do we do about, you know, collecting money to, to send away? How do we do this, Paul? Do we have to give money? And so now he says, well, okay, concerning this, right? I'm responding to your, your question. Uh, and so Paul tells them that they are to take up a collection to give to saints, so other brothers and sisters in Christ, who are living in Jerusalem. So why Jerusalem specifically? Um, if you read the book of Acts, you'll see that there, uh, there were several famines that took place that hit Jerusalem especially hard. And so there were Christians who were in Jerusalem, in the churches in Jerusalem, who were suffering because this famine had hit hard. And so Paul is saying, okay, as brothers and sisters, right, you are living in Corinth, they're in Jerusalem, but we have to support them. We need to send money to them because they are suffering. Um, Paul mentions that he told the churches of Galatia to do the same thing, right? In verse 1, he says, it's not just you guys, Corinth. I'm telling Galatia to send money. If you read Romans 15, if you read 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, oftentimes Paul is like, hey, we have to support the brothers and sisters who are suffering. They have needs that need to be met. Um, the first day of the week, when he says in verse 2, um, that's Sunday, uh, the first day of the week in the ancient world wasn't Monday, it was Sunday. Uh, and so there's this, this, this glimpse that when they would gather on the first day of the week, he says, uh, each of you is to kind of put something aside uh, that maybe you bring to the gathering as, as a contribution to then send to people who need it. So I want you to notice that there's no gimmicks here. Right, if you, if you give me and then God will bless you, there's none of that. You know, sow $100 into the Jerusalem church and you'll receive, there's none of that. Right, there's no gimmicks. 
There's no even um, emotionalism. Paul just says, hey, there's a need. So set some money aside. When he says the, the phrase, as he may prosper, what he's saying is, um, so that you can still live. Right? So if you, like, here's a really simple, so he's not saying you have to give all your money. He's saying each of you, when you come to gather on the first day of the week, um, set something aside so that you guys can still prosper, so that you can still live and buy food and provide for, but take something and then we're going to send it to the church. I just love that it's just very straightforward. And there's a need and you as the church, you can play a role in fulfilling that need. Um, I think a mark of a healthy, thriving church is generosity. It's followers of Jesus who live by these kind of principles that, you know, we need to take care of one another. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because our, literally our next sermon series is about biblical generosity and finances. We're going to talk all, all seven weeks about money. So come back because you're going to be ticked off. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I don't want to linger here too long because we are going to spend a whole next series talking about how do, how, how do we handle money as Christians. But I think there is something to say. That if you want to look at a healthy, thriving church, I think one of the characteristics is that they are generous. Now, Paul didn't tell them, you must tithe 10%. Um, he just says, put something aside. Send something. Your brothers and sisters are in need. So be generous to them. I, I think sometimes we, we Christians get into trouble because we have this mindset of, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves which is not in the Bible anywhere. But we have that, that, and we put all sorts of caveats to our generosity. Well, do they actually need it? How are they going to spend it? Notice that Paul, Paul doesn't answer any questions. Don't worry, we're vetting all the people who we're giving money to to make sure that they're actually poor and they're actually in need so that your money won't be abused. There's none of that. Paul says there's a need. Just give to the need. Right, But I think sometimes, myself included, someone is like, oh, in trouble, and they need financial support, or they need help, and I'm called to be generous, and I go, but didn't you kind of get yourself into that situation? It's kind of your fault. The, the Bible just says, hey, be, take care of one another. So I, as I thought of you as a church, uh, you know, me being your pastor, I just need to commend you for your generosity um, this, is a, this is a very generous church. Again, I'm not tooting our own horns, but you just need to hear this. Um, even in December, we came to you and said, hey, as a church, we're $50,000 behind in our budget, and we're now caught up. So praise God. Right, that's awesome. Yeah, so yes, praise, praise God. So I say that to go, okay, God is clearly working on discipleship in all of us in the area of, of finances. Praise God that the Holy Spirit does that, and I can tell you that, um, you know, when we do the Christmas hampers, when we support missionaries, this church in a lot of ways is very, very generous. My wife and I often say, this is the most generous church we've ever been a part of. So you need to say, okay, praise God. I think it's actually a sign of, of health when a church is just, hey, we need, we need to take care of one another. We need to support each other. We need to help that person who's in need. And, and so Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, hey, be those types of people. Be generous people. Don't hoard your money. Don't say, well, if we give our money to the church in Jerusalem, then our church is going to suffer. Paul's like, no, 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 no. Give to the brothers and sisters. I think radical generosity is a great sign of health. Um, secondly, reliance on the providence of God. So Paul in verse 5 says this, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So you go, okay, it seems like Paul's just giving his itinerary, right? For what is, what's your plan? What's your travel plans, Paul? Well, first I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to go here, and then I'm going to stay here. And it can just seem very bland, like, okay, thanks, Paul, for telling us your travel plans. But I think what Paul is actually uh, doing is he's, he's revealing how he operated, making plans 
but solely relying on the sovereignty and the providence of God. So notice at the end of verse 7, he's just said, I'm going to go to Macedonia, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go here, I hope to winter with you. And then there's four words that are really important. If the Lord permits. Paul's like, I'm, I'm making all these plans, but it's if God permits those things to happen. Even in, in verse 8 and 9, he's like, I'm going to stay in Ephesus. And, and we would go, why would you stay in Ephesus? Because you said it, at the end of verse 9, there's all these adversaries. Why would you stay, Paul? Because he tells us a wide door for effective work. Well, who opens this wide door? It's the Lord. So Paul's like, clearly, God wants me to stay in Ephesus, even though there's opposition, because look, there's this wide door of evangelism, and things are happening here, and I'm going to make all these travel plans, but all of it rests under the fact if God allows this to, to happen. So here's Paul's plan. He's in Ephesus. He says, I'm going to stay here until Pentecost. I'm going to come by way of Macedonia, which means he's not taking the direct way to Corinth by sea. He's going the long way through Macedonia. He says, I'm going to spend the summer and the fall there, and then I hope to winter in Corinth. Now, I want to ask you, is that what happened? And if you know 2 Corinthians, that is not what happened. Paul's plans completely changed. Uh, Paul's plans, I'm not going to read all of 2 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, but Paul actually paid a quick visit to them by sea. He didn't go by Macedonia. He was hoping that they would send him to Macedonia. Then he would return to Jerusalem, and he wanted them, uh, or then they sent him to uh, uh, Jerusalem. And actually, that, that visit, right, he goes by sea. They send him to Macedonia. He comes back. They send him to Jerusalem. That visit caused a massive crisis between his and the, and the Corinthian church. There was a huge argument. Like he says that I have, I have prayed tears over what happened. We don't know 100%, but it wasn't good. So you go, wait a second, Paul. You planned this, and it looks like the opposite happened. And that's exactly what happened. So you go, well, what, what happened, Paul? You had a plan, and then it worked out completely differently. Here's why. Paul lived his life, and he made decisions, and he rested in the providence of God. Now, what do I mean by providence? Providence, essentially, if you would boil it down, means God's control. Um, Theologically, if you read scripture, you will notice that God is continually involved in his creation. Nothing happens outside of his control. The picture we have in the Bible is not a God who kind of created everything, and then he just kind of sits back and says, I wonder what's going to happen. Let's watch this play out. Uh, providentially, God is actually involved in everything that happens in creation. He, he orchestrates all things according to his will. We don't have time this morning, but that, that opens up a whole bunch of questions. Even the bad things? Yes. God providentially is involved to accomplish his purpose and, and his will. So Paul makes plans, but he goes, it's if God allows it to happen. right? I'm, I'm not sovereign over the universe, Paul says. I'm going to make plans, but God is clearly in control. Let me give you another example. Uh, James chapter 4. James says the same thing. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So so notice, like, it's the same idea. that We can be quite arrogant when we're like, you know what? I have a a 10-year plan for my life. This is going to happen, then this is going to happen, and then that's going to happen, and that's not going to happen. It's like, who are you? Your life is a mist. It's a vapor. Instead, we should make plans. Like, there's nothing against making plans. Right, Paul made plans. James says you can make plans, but all oh, always under, okay, if God allows this to happen, then we're going to do this. That's how Paul lived his life. He lived under the providence of God. If God permits this to happen, then it will. And in Paul's case, his travel plans went completely differently than he had planned. <laughs> now, I say all that to say I, I think it's a sign of health. When followers of Jesus and churches can just rest in the sovereignty and the providence of God and and just rely on it. 
So what do I, what do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples. Um, as churches, as followers of Jesus, we plan and, and we, we have ideas and we have ways that we're like, we're going to accomplish the mission that God has for us. We're going to make disciples. We're going to glorify God. And we have all of these ways and ideas and plans that we're going to do it. But all of that has to be under the reality that it's, it's, it's if God allows it to happen. So when I was a youth pastor, um, here's a, a couple of, you know, just easy examples. Um, I, I can remember twice where we did this worship night uh, as a youth group. And it was one of those nights where, uh, and I'm sure some of you have had that experience when you're like, I, I, can li- I, I know that the presence of God is here. Like, whoa, man, it's heavy. Right? And teens were uh, worshiping God like I've never seen it before. And, con- and not just, oh, it's just emotionalism. No, it wasn't. Because it was so, like they were coming and confessing sin to me and repenting of it. And I want to follow Jesus. And we were on our knees and praying. And it lasted a, such, it was amazing, right? And so we're done. And I'm the youth pastor and with youth leaders. And I'm like, we, ha- we got to do that again. Like that was incredible. And so we planned almost an identical night, right? Here's the formula. We'll do, this, we'll do songs. We'll do this. We'll preach. We'll do this. And then and it's going to be another amazing night. So we did it. And do you know what? The night was terrible, Nothing happened. And no kids were confessing sin. I'm like, what? We've done, we did the exact same thing. How is this possible? The providence of God. Right? It was like, as a church, as a youth group, we're going to manipulate the data. And if we, do, if we input all the right things, then we will get this outcome. And, and listen, it doesn't work like that. You can plan and what should have been said is, if the Lord wills, we'll have another powerful night of worship. And if not, that's okay. It's not in his providence. I, I can remember even there, there was several youth groups in town. And one of the youth groups was uh, a lot larger than us. And I remember it was like, what are they doing that we're not doing? How can we duplicate what they're doing so that more kids come to our youth group? And, and that's the wrong approach. You know what the approach should have been? Praise God. In his providence, his spirit is working over there. Bless that. Amazing. We're going to do what we feel God wants us to do. And if the Lord permits, he'll, he'll bless this. Um, there's been times here at, at North Peace where we've tried things because we felt like this would be a good thing. And then it failed. Right? We tried an evening service uh, years ago. Because we were full and it was like, let's do it. This seems like a good thing. Sunday night, it's going to be great. And it lasted for a few months and then it failed. Uh, the Sightsee Dam, for a while there, we, we were invited to go down and it was amazing. And we had this grand thing and then just, just a couple people came. And it kind of was like, oh, I was expecting 100 people to be down here and another church down there. It's amazing. And it wasn't what we expected. And then with COVID, it kind of just squashed it. And, and you go, well, what happened? I mean, we could give lots of examples. See, if, if we don't believe in the providence of God as believers or even as churches, well, then it's us. And we're like, well, we didn't do enough. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. And don't, don't get me wrong. It's, it's not like we live life never making plans and never trying things and go, oh, it's God's providence. No. But listen, if you don't believe in God's providence, then failures will just destroy you <laughs> rather than saying, okay, Obviously, God closed that door for a reason. I might not understand why, but he's, he's providential over all things. So I'm going to trust him. That's how Paul lived his life. And, and I think um, he's, he's possibly encouraging the church, hey, you need to have a proper view of God as we strive together to move the kingdom of God and to, to seek out lost people and to disciple them. It's always, if the Lord permits, we're going to do these things. It's okay if things fail. Number three, a sign of a, of a healthy, thriving church is that there's a team mentality. I'm going to read verses 10 to 20. Um, just look at, look at all these names that Paul is, is mentioning. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. Let, 
So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me. For I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Um, skip to verse 15. We'll come back to the, the 13 and 14. But now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and labor. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus. Because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and uh, Prissa together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Like, did you, did, you, did you notice the amount of people that Paul's like, look at all these people. Thank them. Greet them. Submit to them. Like, Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaeus, Aquila, Priscilla, all of these people. And listen, most letters that Paul ends, he ends with a list of people that he's like, thank these people. They are laboring with me. Thank Juniah. Thank all of these people. Right? Look at Romans 16 and the list of names that Paul's like, it wouldn't be possible to do this without all of these co-laborers. So this is important, and we've talked about it uh, earlier in the letter. The church needs all the members. We need all the gifts. Paul never elevates himself saying, I actually don't need anybody. Don't send anybody. I'm fine. I could do it. I'm an apostle. Paul, Paul never behaves like that. He never elevates himself as more important because he's an apostle. And certainly, Paul does not elevate certain gifts as more important, right? That was the whole point of chapters 12, 13, and 14. He's like, we need everybody. You know what's, you know what's incredible? Verse 12, Paul says, our brother Apollos, I urged him to come visit you. Apollos is the guy that the Corinthians are saying, we like him more than you, Paul, if I was Paul, I'd be like, don't ever talk to Apollos again, because he's mean, and he's stealing people from, like, that's the selfish, sinful part, but Paul calls him, Apollos is a brother, and I'm urging him to go visit you. It's not his will now, right? It wasn't God's will, it wasn't Apollos' idea to come now, but he's going to come. I mean, that takes an incredible uh, amount of humility and an understanding that church is a team sport, to be able to thank the guy and call him a brother and urge him to come visit, that most of the people in the church prefer over you. Like, that's incredible. Paul, aren't you worried that if Apollos goes again, that they're gonna, more people are going to like him better? Listen, like, Christianity, following Jesus, it's, it's a team sport. It is. There's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. It's impossible. And that's popular in our day and age because I get it. Many people get frustrated with the church because it's messy. And they go, I don't need the church. I just need Jesus. And that is just a false statement. <laughs> Again, we've talked lots about this. But when people say, like, I love Jesus, but I just hate the church. What you're saying is, Jesus, I love you, but I hate your bride. Like, if anyone said that to me, Andrew, I love you, but I hate Molly. I'd be like, whoa, well, then you don't really love me. If you hate my bride? So listen, there's the, it's an impossibility to say, I don't need anybody else to be a Christian. It's just me and Jesus. It is not true. You need the community of believers. And every member of the church has something to offer. That's Paul's point when he thanks all of these people. And notice that they, they have different roles. Sometimes he thanks people for the money that they've given, saying, I would not be able to do my missionary work if it wasn't for the generosity of people. Uh, others, he says, you know, Timothy, Timothy is coming to visit you, right? Uh, Paul's sending him. Be nice to him and, and, and help him on his way. He thanks Apollos, which was a different style of teaching, and a, uh, Apollos was very gifted in preaching and teaching, and Paul, you know, says he's a brother, he thanks the, the, the household of Stephanus. He tells the Corinthians, hey, you need to submit to people like that. 
right? So maybe they were elders in the Corinthian church. you got to submit to them. He thanks Aquila and Priscilla and all of these other house churches. It's, it's a team effort. And every member of the church has something to offer. And we've talked lots about this. But if you are like, yeah, North Peace is my church home, you, you have gifts that we need. But the problem is, is that the North American church has largely become about consuming. What can I get? How are my needs met? And I don't like this about the church, and I don't like this, so I'm going to now go to a different church because they will then, I can consume over there. But really, the whole, how the church is described is that we all come with something to give. I have the gift of mercy. I have the gift of helps. I have the gift of generosity. I have the gift of preaching. I have the gift of teaching. And it's like this team mentality where we go, um, uh, can, can you do this thing? Well, no, I don't have that gift. But you know what? I know who does have that gift. Can I just be frank? Okay, so um, lots of times what churches do is that we hire a pastor who then must do everything because we pay you. So you now must have all the gifts and you must do everything, right? So there's just a very, I I don't have um, the gift of like mercy and encouragement. Some of you are like, yeah, we know, Andrew. <laughs> now, that's, that's not to say that as a follower of Jesus, I don't show mercy and seek to encourage people. You're not off the hook. I don't have to be merciful. But is my gift going to visit people and sitting with them and, and encouraging them? In their, that's just not my gift. You know whose gift it is? Dawn's and other people's. And yet there's this, there's this expectation that's like, but I don't want a visit from someone with that gift. I want a, a visit from the pastor. Right? And what Paul's whole thing, he, he's saying is, listen, God gifts different people to do different things. We, look at all these names. So listen, if you attend this church, you have gifts to offer. You do. And we, ne- we need all of us. This is a team effort. Right? It doesn't rise and fall on one person, which I can, I can tell you I was... I was overjoyed that I could leave for four months and the church flourished. Praise God. It's not about me or Dawn or any one person. It's about all of us saying, this is a team. Like, thank Timothy. Thank Apollos. Look at Stephanus. Look at Priscilla. Look at Aquila. All of these people. Paul's like, man, they are co-laborers. And so that's, that's us. Co-laborers in the gospel. I think a sign of a healthy church is that it doesn't rise and fall on one person. It, it's a team mentality. Uh, number four. Uh, a sign of a healthy, thriving church is that they are rooted in the gospel. So verse 13 says this. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Now, those seem like maybe um, disconnected commands. <laughs> like Paul's just like oh, scattershotting this verse and do this and do this and do this. But, but I think they're actually connected. Um, be watchful just simply means to stay awake. It's the idea of being on guard. Similar, right? Uh, chapter 15, verse 34, uh, Paul s- says, flip too far. 1534, Paul says, wake up. From your drunken stupor. It's that idea of being watchful, being awake. Don't fall asleep. Stay alert. And I think he means a a few different things. Be watchful for false teaching. Be watchful for sin creeping in. Be watchful for uh, Satan and his ploys. Be watchful. But also I think there's an element where Paul's saying, be watchful because Jesus is coming back. Live your lives ready, ready for his return. Um, Matthew 25, Jesus gives a parable about that, right? Uh, Matthew 25, uh, verse 1, it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom, right? That's Jesus. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, right? Here's Jesus. He's back. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. 
But the wise answered, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And when they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in, to him, uh, went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I, I, I do not know you. Jesus' whole point is he's coming back and there's going to be people who are ready. I'm living my life ready, right? And I have extra oil. That's the example of being ready. And then there's some who are going to live their lives and they're not ready, meaning they're going to get distracted. They're going to stray away. They're going to fall into sin and temptation. They're going to turn their backs because they're like, Jesus is taking too long. I'm not ready. I'm going to fall asleep. And then Jesus will come back and those people will be like, we're not ready for it. And Jesus' whole point in Matthew 25, 13, he says, watch, therefore, same word, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is what Paul is, is saying. He's saying, be watchful. Don't live your life where you're like, you know what, I got plenty of time. I, I, I've actually had conversations with people throughout my years where it's that kind of mentality. You know what? I'll fully pursue Jesus in a while. But I'm just going to go and, and kind of be, be occupied over here. And Paul and Jesus would say, oh, oh, don't live like that. Be watchful. Stay awake. Be on guard. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Which is just a way to say, just persevere to the end. Be steadfast, immovable, right? We've, we've seen that in chapter 15, right? Persevere to the end. Stand firm in the faith. What are we standing in? Paul tells us we're standing in the faith. We're not standing in our feelings. We're not standing in subjectivity. We're not standing in our circumstances and our surroundings. He's like, you're standing in the faith. The life, death, resurrection of Jesus. That's what you're standing in. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm. Same words. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. All throughout the New Testament, there's that kind of language. Persevere, stand firm, be faithful, make it till the end. And then he says, act like men and be strong. Um, act like men was a common saying, and it was a common command in that day and age, and what it basically meant was uh, that you would act with bravery and courage, right? Back in the day when being masculine wasn't toxic, and it was like, we actually want men to be brave and courageous and to stand up for something, it was a common saying, hey, act like a man, not like, oh, now i got to cut wood. No, not those stereotypical things, but be brave, be courageous, be strong, grow in strength, right? It, the way it's worded is that it's a process. I am strengthening, I am growing in my strength. That we would be brave and strong and courageous and all of that, I think, comes when we are just rooted in the gospel. Like Paul's not saying, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, be better. That's not what he's saying. The reason that you and I can be watchful and stand firm in the faith and be strong and courageous and brave is because of the gospel, because it's true. Like, that's Paul's whole letter, isn't it? He's like, this is the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. So stand in that. Let that shape your worldview. Believe that. Let that transform you. So we're not brave and courageous and strong by standing firm in ourselves. It's the gospel. So don't, Paul has warned us several times, don't get swept up in worldly wisdom. Don't get swept up in little pet projects that you're passionate about. At the end of the day, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we root ourselves in. I think we have got to be reminded of that as believers and as churches because I think lots of times we can focus on things that are still important, but they're not the main thing. And so churches sometimes get into trouble because then their main thing is just politics. It's our job to, to tell our people to vote a certain way. We're going to get out there and clash in the political sphere. Sometimes it's end times. I've seen churches where it just all we're going to do is preach about how the world ends. Okay. Sometimes it's social issues. Listen, all of those things are important. They are. 
I'm not saying we shouldn't think about them, but it's not what you stand in. What we stand in is the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. I think it's actually a sign of health when a, when a church just is, is so rooted in the gospel. That's what they're standing in. Um, lastly, Paul encourages us. What does a, a, a healthy church look like? Um, well, it's love. Um, verse 14, he says, let all that you do be done in love. And then verse 21, he ends his letter this way. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you, and my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Uh, Paul's already talked about this, right, in chapter 13. The whole chapter, Paul's like, I'm going to teach you a more excellent way. Here's a, here's a better way, <laughs> and it's the way of love. And so what, what does he mean? Well, clearly he means love of God. Because he says, if anyone doesn't have love for the Lord, well, they're cursed. So he means love for God, and then he means love uh, for others, right? He says, let all that you do be done in love. And then he himself says, my love is with you all. And so really, it's love of God and love of others. Is that not what Jesus said? What is the greatest commandment? Right? Someone came to him and, and, and tried to trick him and say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law, all the prophets hang on those two pegs. Love God and love others. So it's like, you want to obey the whole Bible? Love God and love others. That's how it's all summed up. Um, Jesus even said in John 13, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, but also, you, or you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. No, you have to, you have to understand, this goes far beyond just, like, gushy feelings, right? We just have to be, we just have to be realistic. It's not just, I have this kind of butterfly heart love for you, um, this type of love that Paul and Jesus talk about, it actually has like teeth to it. Because Jesus says, love one another as I loved you. Well, how did Jesus love us? Um, he laid down his life for us. Jesus loved us sacrificially. He served us. That's how we are to love one another. So a sign of a healthy, thriving church is when we sacrificially love and serve one another. Do I have to like everybody at my church? No. But you have to love them. Right? Because it's just unrealistic to say, like, we're, I'm going to get along with everybody. No, of course not. And that's not the type of love that the Bible talks about. Oh, this gushy, romantic love feelings. No. It's way deeper than that. I can... I can sacrificially serve and love someone that maybe I'm not very fond of. And a sign of a healthy church is when we can serve one another and we serve each other like Jesus served us and we sacrifice for one another and that is how we love each other. So I hope, you, I hope you've seen throughout all of this letter to the Corinthians um, Corinth is not unique. I think sometimes we look at case studies of churches and we're like, oh, what a mess. Um, all churches are messy churches, all of them. And the reason is, is that churches are made up of sinners saved by grace, following our Savior imperfectly. So, you know, our little exercise at the beginning, let's describe the perfect church, it just doesn't exist. And that's, that's not a bad thing. It won't exist until we are in the presence of Jesus as his people. And all sin, all darkness, all death, all evil is gone forever. So, so all churches, all of them, are messy. Um, I, I've been doing pastoral ministry for like 17, 16, 17 years. And I have seen all manner of mess. I have, I have had things done to me that are just messy and awful, 
and I have done things as a sinful wretch <laughs> that I've had to repent of and go, I can't believe that I talked like that or I did that to that person, all, all things. Um, uh, when I was an intern, I, I, be, I became a pastoral intern in a church at 20 years old. And I started September, and I had this idea of, man, I'm working in a church now. I'm going to be a pastor. This is amazing. In the first four months at that church, the lead pastor was fired by the elders because they just thought, you've been here 17 years. Uh, your, your time is done. The pastor disagreed, and then it blew up into a massive church fight. So I am four months into working at a church with my rose-colored church glasses on, and I'm like, what? This kind of stuff happens? And I'm at a business, me business meeting when people are literally yelling at each other. And then the pastor was fired, and then we moved on to an, another and, and I was like, wow, okay, that kind of blew my worldview. And then a year later, I, I was working at that church interning, and then, and then part-time at another little a neighborhood church called Cornerstone Neighborhood Church, and they asked me to work part-time as the youth leader there, and so I'm working at two churches, and within six months of me working at that church, the lead pastor was fired because he was having a, an affair with the former youth pastor's wife. And I went, like, really? Oh for 2, finding perfect churches. <laughs> and I can remember, I called my dad because I'm 20 years old, and through tears, being like, is this really what it's like to work in a church? This is awful. And I remember he said, listen, not all churches are like this. There are really, really, really good leaders that you will never hear about because they just faithfully serve. But he said, this is the reality of living in a broken, fallen world. We're, we're sinners saved by grace. And so it is naive to say, Stuff like that would never happen in the church. Obviously, our hearts break when it, when it does. But churches are messy. <laughs> but I think if, if churches would focus on some main things, like there's no silver bullet. If we just do this, then no one will ever sin. <laughs> That's not reality. But I think Paul is saying, like, if, if we could focus on some main things, it would help contribute to the overall health and flourishing of the church. Like if we would just be radically generous to one another, serve one another, sacrifice for each other, take care of each other's needs. If we, uh, if we could have a team mentality where it's like, listen, we need everybody in the body. We need these gifts and those gifts and those gifts. If, if we could rely on the providence of God and go, whatever we do as a church, our job is to be faithful. God is providentially working out his plan. Our job is to just faithfully preach the gospel. If we could be rooted in the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and if we loved one another sacrificially, um, you can get through a lot of mess when those are kind of your anchor points. Because I've seen it. Listen, I, I shared some bad stories. But I have also seen God redeem a whole bunch of stuff. Like sinful things that you're like, I can't believe this. I have, I've had conversations in my head when I'm like, I cannot believe this is happening. And then you see God providentially work through it and relationships are restored and uh, things get healed and then you move on and you go, praise God, it's possible to work through the mess. I think that's why Paul doesn't just write to the Corinthians and say, to the Corinthians, just shut it down. Right? That would be easier. This is too hard. It's too messy. Close the doors. I think Paul's like, no, we can right the ship. We can work through some of this mess, and we can get back on track. And so for us, I just want to encourage you, um, North Peace is not exempt from mess. We have mess. We've gone through mess in the past, and we will go through mess in the future. We will. But I think if we can focus on some of these things and go, we want, to, we want the gospel to be first and foremost. We want to be people who are deeply uh, sacrificial in our love for one another. We want to be people who repent and turn back to Jesus. We want to be generous. We want to have good theology and rely on God's providence as he leads this church. I, I'm really convinced that we can be and we are a, a healthy, thriving church by the grace of God. So this is why Paul ends by saying, I just, he loves this church. Isn't that amazing? 
he started, if you remember, all the way back in the beginning, he starts by thanking God for this church. And we go, really, Paul? (laughs) And then he ends and he says, the grace of God be with you and my love is with you all. So be encouraged, church, um, that even though we might go through mess, um, God is good and we can move forward and go through it rooted and grounded in some of these things. So, Father, I just thank you for your word. I know that sometimes chapters like this in the Bible can seem so scattered and random, and I I pray that the message would not have been that. Um, God, that we can see some key things that that Paul is focusing on as he closes out this letter. Um, God, uh, I I just thank you that you are the one who so graciously builds your church. Um, Jesus, you said that. You said, I am going to build my church. And so you have partnered with us as fallible, broken human beings, and so often we get in the way of you building your church. So help us, God. Um, We want to be a healthy, thriving church, and God, in in many ways we are. I see so many good things happening, but I pray that we would just be rooted and grounded in some key things that we would never stray from the gospel That is what we are standing firm in. That is what we're clinging to. That is what we are rooted in. I pray that we would never stray from that, God. I pray that you would help us in this congregation here, this group of believers, that we would be generous with one one another. We would sacrifice for each other. We would love each other as you have loved us, Jesus. And God, I just pray that we would just make plans and move forward, but always with the understanding that you are in control, God, and that we would rest in that and plan accordingly. All all our job is is to be faithful, and so will we do that. Thank you, God, for the, the letter to the Corinthians. What an encouragement it's been over the last weeks as so many of my own sinfulness has been pointed out. And my pride and my issues, God, that you, that you have pointed out that we're, we're exactly the same. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would just do that work in our hearts as we're convicted, that we would turn to you, that we would pursue you, Jesus, and that you would just strengthen and flourish your church here. And so we thank you, Jesus, for all these things, and we pray this in your name. Amen.